I'm Paul Wiegraf, Director of the Delaware Division of the Arts and your host for today. Joining me remotely today is the Sewell C. Biggs, Curator of American Art at the Biggs Museum, Ryan Grover. Welcome, Ryan. Hi, thank you for having me today. Great to have you back on the show. It's been a while, and uh, I think the last time you were on was pre-COVID. So let's uh, take a look at the Biggs Museum and uh, how you've been adapting to life in a COVID world since mid-March. Um, well, like everybody, um, we all went home, and, yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and that's been great. But, um, and like everybody, we initially closed our doors, um, but have since opened them. Um, we've been open now for about two weeks, and well, I think, and it's and it's been fantastic. The um, the the uh, we've had individuals like a really manageable number of individuals come in. Everybody's been terrific. Um, they've been putting up with um, our sort of growing pains as far as sort of like dealing with safety issues above and beyond everything else. Um, and they, everybody seems to be really appreciative, not only to be back in the office, um, offices part-time, but also just to have the doors open and have people walking around. It's been, um, it's been really sort of heartening to experience. But, um, you know, the bigs, I feel like the bigs was probably in a little bit better position than many institutions to be able to make this, uh, I'm going to use that catchphrase right now, that pivot, um, the COVID pivot. Um, we had already been developing a lot of digital content that we were sharing both in our galleries and on our mm -hmm. website. Um, we have been sort of filming workshops and we have been doing tours for the collection and we have been doing sort of these kind of deep dive analysis of different objects and such. Um, and so we basically just started to take all of that content from the website and really blast it on social media. Um, we've cut back in the amount of printing materials that we're sending to people because everybody's really uncomfortable with print right now and um, understandably. And um, we've just been making sure that we have uh, daily updates about what the museum is doing, what we're creating, what we've been, um, what we've, uh, been able to share. And then since that, we've just been trying to do both um, live online programming, workshops, tours, um, uh, lectures, that kind of thing, as well as some pre-recorded materials. Now, I, I'm curious, uh, as, as an arts museum, uh, for, the, for the time that you've been closed, did this give you an opportunity, close to the public, I should say, did this give you an opportunity to do things with the facility or with your collections or uh, any kind of maintenance that you might not otherwise have been able to do if you, when you were open regularly to the public? We didn't really have anything prioritized like that. Um, mm -hmm. There were sort of small things, minor things, but um, we but we got enough feedback from individuals early on that we decided that we were going to keep up our feature exhibitions and keep our calendar of feature exhibitions going during this time period. But at first, we just shared everything digitally. Um, so we were in the museum to be able to install like the award winners exhibition that we do every summer. Mm -hmm. um, and even though we knew that we weren't going to be able to share that, we weren't able to share that for the first six weeks of the show's run in a physical format, like for people right. to come in and do live visitation. But we were doing tours and programming and interviews and online um, uh, like uh, 
how do I say this, sort of like short, like short studio tours of the artists' environments that were involved in the exhibition, um, we've been able to share the content of that exhibition with a much wider audience. And honestly, Paul, I got to say, one of the things that we, um, we had suspected, but we have really verified through this, this time of COVID, was that um, the audience for even a small museum in the middle of Delaware, like, you know, in, in a rural community within Delaware has a much wider appeal than just what's happening within the state. Half of the visitation that we're seeing now in a digital world has nothing to do with the state. Um, they're not people here. They're in Arizona and they're in New Mexico and they're in Georgia and they're in Florida and they're from all over the place. Um, I think that even when we have, even when we embrace live audiences again as the sort of the the premiere as like the you know that everything will be sort of organized around live audiences again um i think we're always going to have this digital component for everything that we do well and and i i would venture to guess that you, you've been able with the expanded digital presence you've been able to expand your audience base geographically as you've suggested which may in the long term have an impact as visitors come to Delaware. As, I think so. I as think the so. State opens really. up. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you've been doing some really innovative work and, and we appreciate uh, the partnership with you in presenting the artist fellows. Uh, we were disappointed that we couldn't have some kind of a, an in-person reception and presentation to the artists. I, I know they always look forward to it, but you're presenting them, uh, both digitally and, and now that you're open for people to walk through, uh, it really has been a, a great uh, tribute to them. Absolutely. And we're excited to be able to say that um, uh, first part of August, uh, I think it's probably the first Friday or Saturday of August, the show will transfer from the Biggs Museum to Camp Rehoboth. Um, at Rehoboth Beach. So we are still touring this exhibition as well. Um, and one of the things that's really fun about this exhibition is that, as you remember, you know, and you know better than anyone, um, we have not only visual artists, but also performing artists and literary artists. We have, instead of being able to sort of uh, share things like books and written materials and any other kind of um, things around this exhibition, we've basically just digitized everything so that it's all QR code, uh, um, it's all locked with QR code. So you basically go with your phone, you scan the QR code, and you get all of this extra writing materials right there on your phone that you can sort of use and uh, come back to time and again. Um, so you have that visual art component, that strength of the visual arts, but then you also have all of this extra depth of materials that are available directly from your phone. It's been, um, uh, people have adjusted really quickly to it and they really love it. Uh, yeah, I'm very impressed with, with what you've been able to do to integrate all of that material. Uh, it really does uh, enrich the experience of, of seeing the exhibition. Let me ask you this. Uh, during the time that you were down, uh, you, I'm sure, had to make a, a lot of plans and what you would have to do to reopen. How, how have you reopened? I mean, the, the uh, visual arts community has an advantage, I would say, over the performing arts community because you can sort of control traffic flow and people walking through the galleries, which a performing mm -hmm. arts venue can't do. They have the whole group there at one time. What, what kinds of planning did you take and what, how did you implement reopening? Well, I, um, so museums, I think, are in a unique situation in terms of sort of culture and entertainment in that um, 
they are already set up for social distancing. People like quiet environments. They want a little bit of distance. They want to be able to sort of commune and create sort of meditative space around them to sort of get into uh, the objects as well as sort of the interpretive materials with objects. Um, we just sort of solidified that a little bit with time ticketing. Um, we've made it so that um, parties of up to 10 can come in together. Um, but we give about 15 minutes to about a half hour around each party so that they are not um, over top of one another. And our museum is set up so that you are kind of on a timeline. You started the earliest part of the collection, every gallery is another like 20, 30 years up that timeline. So it automatically creates a natural path through the museum. Mm -hmm. um, so we tell people that they should expect to be there for two hours and that the people, the next group of individuals that will be um, behind them will be 15 minutes or a half hour behind them. So several galleries distance. And yeah, it's been, um, it, people have had no problems with it. I should say about half the individuals that have come so far have come with reservations. We really recommend it, but we're able to accommodate individuals with, on a walk-in basis as well. We sort of mandated, um, based upon the governor's, um, uh, uh, the governor's re recommendations, we've capped our visitation at about 30 people at any given time. And then, um, which is well under what the expectations were from the governor's offices. And then the materials that the governor um, gave on the very local level mixed with the recommendations of the CDC really became a terrific outline for us as far as like, you know, how to position people in front of elevators, how to set up your, um, your check-in situation, um, how to create a video of the new rules for the museum. Um, of course, wearing masks, that kind of thing. Like, um, it be, you know, basically just sort of broke down to about seven or eight really clear, interesting, simple steps that anybody can take. And um, it's been great. We had a lot of community board and staff involvement in creating the rules. And people, like I said, they've adjusted to it seamlessly. And seeing as you're a visual arts museum with a, an incredibly valuable collection, it tends to be a please do not touch environment anyway, for the most part, correct? Yeah, American, um, American museum visitors are, um, I think really, um, they're really savvy to those kinds of rules already. So right. these are not, you know, um, people, I mean, when you're in a museum, you, you find people that either, even hesitate to even touch the elevator buttons and such. So, <laughs> so um, uh, museums are kind of the ideal place to not get infected from anything. <laughs> now, now, when did you actually open again to the public? Uh, we opened uh, mid-July. So okay. I think, um, I forget the exact day, but it was just within days of the 4th of July um, uh, virtual celebration that was happening in downtown Dover. So it was in the following week on July 8th, I think it was. Well, I, I want to shift gears to your upcoming exhibition, but let me first remind our listeners that you are tuned into Delaware State of the Arts here on News Radio 1450 WILM and 1410 WDOV. Our guest joining me remotely today is Ryan Grover, the Sewell C. Biggs Curator of American Art at the Biggs Museum in Dover. Ryan, you've got an exhibit coming up uh, beginning August 7th with a well-known entity in the Delaware lexicon of artists, Jack Lewis. Let's talk about this exhibition coming up, Delaware's uh, Jack Lewis, Delaware's Hidden Gem. Absolutely. Um, so this exhibition um, was a way for us. Um, well, I should I should point out 
we actually had a different exhibition sort of slated for this time frame of a painter named Tom Wilson, who unfortunately had passed away in the 90s. And um, because we were going to have to borrow so many objects from the community um, and from individuals that probably would have lent to us, but then had would never come to see the show themselves, um, we just decided that we wanted to put that off. We wanted to maintain that community support. We wanted to make sure that we were able to create content that the community really could engage with so that we wouldn't alienate anybody during this time period. So Tom Wilson will hop in um, um, knocking on wood uh, in the spring of next year. And in the meantime, we looked to our own permanent collection of Jack Lewis paintings. And then we called some private collectors. We also called Rehoboth Art League and other entities to be able to bring in a great selection of Jack Lewis paintings. Um, and as you know, uh, Jack Lewis, he came to Delaware, I think it was in the early 1930s, during the Depression. And um, he quickly started making a name for himself by creating his own distinctive depictions of scenes all over the Delmarva Peninsula. Um, sometimes these are house studies, sometimes they are sort of agricultural rural settings, sometimes they're entire townscapes. And um, he really seemed to delight in this idea of being able to capture these scenes from all over the state. And, um, and you can imagine, you know, this was not, um, this was not as big a hub, this was not as big an attraction in the 1930s. A lot of what he was looking at was rural communities. Um, and so he captured it at a time before it became this big sort of like uh, vacation destination of the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting, the views that he creates, you can still go to those places and you can sort of marvel at all the things that have changed within your state. So we are initiating people to do that. This exhibition is going to be a live exhibition. You can come and see it at the museum, but a large portion of this will also be online and it will match up to current imagery of those spaces and encourage individuals to take the images, the Jack Lewis images and go into their state and take safe drives with their families all over the state to re connect basically with these old views of towns like Annapolis and Milford and Georgetown and Pfeiffer Orchards and other kinds of landmarks all over the Delmarva Peninsula. So instead of a wine tour or a beer tour, you can take a Jack Lewis tour. Exactly. Now, I, I'm curious, uh, I believe he was based in Bridgeville, living in uh -huh. Delaware, is that right? Um, um, he was, yeah. Um, and there were other locations that he and his wife had lived in as well, but um, Bridgeville is the one that everybody sort of um, sort of associates with him. Right. Now, was, was he one of the, I'm curious, was he one of the uh, depression artists that, you know, one of the WPA uh, funded artists, or was he working entirely on his own? I don't believe that he was funded directly from the WPA, but from other federal sources. So he okay. was part of um, Civilian Conservation Corps. Got um, it. Okay. And, um, and so federally funded under the administration of, I think it was a Colonel Corcoran, who was um, largely trying to remediate uh, mosquitoes along the coastline in Delaware during the Depression. And so Jack was brought in to basically record the activities of the Civilian Conservation Corps. And then that launched into a relationship with the other project that the Corcoran's were putting together, which was the Rehoboth Art League. And then he began teaching courses in art all up and down the state. And he supplied all these individuals with 
um, uh, original portraits of their houses and communities. And um, it wasn't long before he just became this sort of fixture throughout the state. Um, one of the things that we're really trying to emphasize with the exhibition is that Jack would wake up in the first thing in the morning, he would kind of just point to an area on the map and then he would go there. He would paint during the day and he would come back with several paintings. Um, and it was just about, it was, it was about the destination to him. It was about this sort of uh, ritual of going to these places, recording what he saw, and then putting it in his back pocket and moving on. Everybody that I've talked to seems to have some sort of memory of Jack Lewis painting like on the edge of, you know, on the edge of the street in the downtown where they grew up. It's, um, it, it's just interesting how much of a, how many people have a personal relationship with him. Now, what medium did he use? He was watercolor, wasn't he? Or? Largely water-based, yeah. yeah. So watercolors, okay. wash, that kind of thing. But there are a couple of acrylic paints as well. Okay. So he, he painted largely on site. Uh, what edify me? What's, what's the difference between the type of painting he did and what is described as plein air painting? You know, it's, um, so I guess you could say that he definitely was a plein air painter in a lot of ways, except that I would really sort of categorize him more as an expressionist. Um, he was really one of the first individual artists within Delaware that I know of that was really uh, looking towards European modernism, modernism that was coming out of the areas of New York and Philadelphia, um, and really allowing him to change up his visual vocabulary. So instead of, um, you know, there are moments when Jack is very accurate to the things that he saw. He's recording people, he's recording buildings and houses the way that they look. But often, and so, and when Jack is really at his best, he's really allowing himself to, to sort of explore the emotional content of form and color. His brushwork becomes really expressive. He is capturing patterns within the subjects that he's looking at um, and exaggerating them. Um, so they become these kind of explosive forms that sort of um, radiate all over the, the picture that he's creating. Not really so concerned about staying within the lines, but really allowing himself to go kind of go outside of the lines, I guess you could say. And then he really sort of exaggerated a lot of his colors. He, allowed, he introduced more colors. He would see little traces of colors and then really sort of like blow them up and dominate the entire uh, picture plane. He just let the, let the colors sort of choose him in a lot of ways, which is really, um, it's, it's interesting for our eyes today. Because you go to some of the destinations, you know, you can be in downtown Lipsick and it's uh, the intersection of the buildings that I'm thinking of. There are four buildings that are sort of in the sort of crossroads area near the marina. But through Jack's eyes, it becomes this sort of, um, this just a wildly expressive uh, series of textures that he's picking up on. And it's just really fun to sort of see how he translated those things and to see how much of those translations exist today. Well, before we uh, run out of time, I wanna give you an opportunity to tell our listeners where they can find out more information about the Biggs Museum and the upcoming exhibition. Oh, definitely visit the website. Everything is on the website. Um, we also are doing a lot with Facebook. Um, Twitter, as well as Instagram right now. So definitely follow us there. The website is uh, www.bigsmuseum.org. And, um, and in terms of programming, uh, you, we have a whole tab about upcoming sort of programs that are happening throughout the month of August and September. But a lot of it is workshops. We're doing a lot of tours within the exhibitions that are available through Zoom platforms. Um, we're also doing sort of uh, 
lectures, sort of research lectures based upon the collections, and just trying to make sure that we create a lot of um, uh, conceptual texture within the things that we do. So some things for kids, some things for families, some things for adults. And like I said, we're, and the whole thing with Jack Lewis is about trying to get outside and enjoy your own backyard. Which, which I think is a, a great, uh, very creative way of presenting his work and, and really presenting Delaware uh, through the arts. We've got, a, got a, about a minute and a half left. I'm curious, uh, Ed Loper Sr., another well-known Delaware artist, is uh, well-known for the impact he had on a number of artists. Uh, can you speak to the impact Jack Lewis had on either local or regional artists? So Jack, um, Jack was part of a group of individuals that were largely based in sort of Sussex and Southern Kent County um, and sort of associated with Rehoboth Art League. So you can think about people like Ethel and Will Leach. You can think about um, Jack Lewis. You can think about um, Howard Schroeder. And they all knew each other. They all fed on each other. They um, really sort of um, helped to create a visual vocabulary in Delaware that was very modern. And, um, and I think helped to really kind of preserve in our minds some of these sort of golden periods of Delaware's history. So they've, um, they, they really have, in a lot of ways, kind of visually defined, especially Southern Delaware. And, um, and we're, I'm really grateful for them. Yeah, and, and his work is fascinating. I, I know the state has a number of his pieces of work. And as you said, the Biggs Museum has a significant collection of his. He really was quite prolific in the work. It's true. He it really is yeah. true. Yeah. And it really, as you say, it, it really is eye-catching, the colors pop, and you, you really get a sense, uh, you're not just looking at a painting, you get a real feel for what it was he was experiencing as he painted. Yeah, I think you, um, I think you can really sort of understand him a little bit better by looking at his paintings. Yeah. Well, and with that, uh, it's time for us to wrap up. Ryan Grover, the curator of the Biggs Museum of American Art, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Paul.